At Magellan Learning Solutions, our mission is to help our clients' educational missions with tailored curricular and operational solutions to help them thrive. To meet the accompanying challenges, the experts at Magellan Learning Solutions offer a full spectrum of services in the areas of curriculum development, operational administration, training and professional development, enrollment and marketing, or custom solutions to niche projects. Whether managing turnkey projects, consulting, or acting as a force multiplier, our experience and relational approach will help your team attain its goals. For all your educational needs, Think Magellan. Visit us at thinkmagellan.com today and set up an introductory meeting. Welcome to the Magellan Podcast, navigating education in the 21st century. This podcast brings the expertise of Magellan Learning Solutions to the biggest questions and issues in higher education. It is produced and directed by Adam Rank, podcast theme written and recorded by Wayne Patton, and it features Magellan partners Wayne Patton, Aaron Traphagan, and Emily Hetty. If you're like most people, you've probably learned some piece of information and then, as soon as it didn't seem useful anymore, promptly forgot it. It takes a lot of effort to move knowledge from short-term memory to long-term memory, where you can call on it over and over again. Today's conversation about germane load will give us tips for helping students to do this more effectively. Join the Magellan Partners as they discuss germane load. Thanks for that intro, Adam. That might have been the most dramatic uh, interpretation of moving information from short-term to long-term memory ever. Very well done. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, again, hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Traffig, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Emily Hetty and Dr. Wayne Patton. How are you all doing? Fabulous. Good. Good. Excellent. Well, Wayne, I know uh, you've got some exciting information to, to share with us today or something you want to talk about. Yeah, it appears I do. Um, so we will be at the Hotel Roanoke at the end of March for the Virginia Community College System's New Horizons Conference, and we'll be doing a presentation there. So we'd like to invite all our friends from the VCCS that will be there and uh, maybe shake some hands, get to know you. But we'll just be co-presenting with a client of ours, but uh, we hope to see you there. Awesome. Thank you. Apologies for looking at your headphones. You look like a set of horns on your head. Um, <laughs> so, and sure I was worried about if mine sure looked the, the same way. Uh, you look great, Aaron. You <laughs> thank great. you. Uh, th- this week, uh, we're going <laughs> to continue our deep dive uh, on cognitive load. Uh, last week, we or last podcast anyway, uh, we talked a, a bit about uh, schemas. Uh, and this week, we're going to focus on germane load. Uh, and so as we dive into that, Emily, why don't you school us up on what, what we mean when we're talking about germane load? Okay. So um, we've talked about with cognitive load um, the fact that you can only handle so much stuff in your brain at any one time. And as teachers in classes or as people designing curriculum, we want, we want that use, um, that space to be put to the best use possible. So um, we're, we're aware that the subject matter that we're teaching is going to occupy a certain amount of that space. It's just it's going to take up some space. And if it's something like calculus and people have never seen calculus before, it's going to take up a lot of space. Um, one of the things that we don't want to take up space, of course, is all that extra stuff like noise, um, whatever's happening um, outside your window, all of those things. We don't want that to be in the learning space. 
But another thing we do want to have in the learning space is, is germane load. And that's that's really the effort that your brain is putting into moving materials from short-term to long-term memory. It's basically kind of your brain's muscle work um, that, that goes into learning. So just as, as an everyday example of this kind of thing, um, I'm going to talk about moving a box. Um, I guess there's there's better and worse ways to move a box from one place to another. Um, we, we had a TV delivered to the office today, and it was admirably moved from one room to another by, among other people, Adam, our producer. Thanks, Adam. It was, it was really good. Um, what would not have been admirable would have been if, if Adam had um, not lifted the TV with his legs, if he had picked it up with his fingertips and um, sort of balanced it against himself and then swung his head from side to side as fast as he possibly could. That would waste a lot of effort, um, and it would interfere with the efficiency of getting the TV moved. And sometimes when we're teaching a class, we cause students to do things like this. We make a funny side comment um, that causes students to swing their attention somewhere else to take their their effort off the learning material that we want them to encounter. Um, sometimes we we don't think about the fact that there are better and worse ways to learn that material. Um, maybe group work's the right way to learn it sometimes. Maybe you need to just memorize it sometimes. And um, we need to think about those things so that we can help students um, make the best use of their cognitive space. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, excellent. Um, and so as we get into that, I guess really the, the first thing we want to talk about is applying uh, this to the, the learning environment, uh, designing good assignments and whatnot. And, you know, I think why we want to do that is is the important question. I think sort of in the pre-discussion, Wayne gave a great example of uh, – the folks who go into the gym or, uh, you know, and, and we talked about the funny gym videos everybody usually sees around the beginning of January where people are uh, very improperly using all the right machinery. Um, <laughs> so education can be very much that same thing. Uh, we might have folks who are teaching high school courses at 32 weeks, uh, but we have online adjuncts teaching, you know, at a university uh, courses in five to eight weeks, and, and they're not teaching less information. Uh, we still need to have the same amount of uh, material. We still need to get students to the uh, attainment of the outcomes. Uh, so how we approach these things and, and create that efficiency is is important so that we can, can get students in that germane space, avoid the uh, extraneous uh, elements as well. So tell a gym story, Wayne. What what we should do is put a link uh, uh, in the podcast somehow and, or, and, and on social media. And there, there's a few terrible videos where, yes, people are uh, working the wrong muscle, I guess you could say. so. An example of this um, that I know happened to me, I mean, I, I can give lots of bad examples, but um, when I was an undergrad, um, it was just kind of understood that every class was going to have a paper at midterm and a paper at the final. And it was going to be like a 10-page paper and then a 15-page paper. No matter what the class was, we had a 10-page paper and a 15-page paper. And um, sometimes that was very appropriate. Um, you know, philosophy class, that was a, a good way to measure learning. I don't really think in my undergrad psychology class um, where really it was just Psych 101 and we were supposed to kind of learn about the different schools of psychology, different ideas, so on. I had nothing to say at that point. I mean, I, I didn't have anything that I could analyze. Um, I was really just supposed to be kind of learning the material. A test would have actually been a, a more germane way of approaching that material. So that's that's one example. 
Yeah, I think that th- at that level, you're thinking of, you know, terms, you're thinking of graphics and imagery. I think for psych, we had to, like, draw out the parts of the brain and, yeah. and what their functions were. And that was 35 years ago, and I still remember it because right. it was appropriate for the level. But, yeah, often, you know, at that at that point, you're asked to write a paper, and there's that right. when you're an 18-year-old student, you're feeling like you're just filling in the words on the lines of the paper to try and finish the assignment. But how beneficial is it? Not very. Not very. Uh, I mean, another example, and I'll, I'll tell my second horror story. Um, when I was in undergrad, it was, I went to a big research institution, um, and it was, not, it was not liberal artsy. We didn't do much of anything to try to connect one discipline to another. Um, it, the place was just so big. I don't know how they would have done that. Um, so we really struggled um, with things like we talked about in the last episode, schema formation. We struggled with making connections among classes, connections among disciplines. And the university, to its credit, realized this, and they realized that was a shortcoming. So they fixed it, though, through putting in place a requirement that everybody who um, was getting a, a Bachelor of Arts degree, not a Bachelor of Science, but a BA, was going to have to take an upper-level class, a 400-level class, outside of their major and outside of their minor. So I took a, um, a sociology course, um, and, you know, I didn't really know anything about sociology. I'd taken Social 100, and that was, that was pretty much it. So I go into this 400-level course, and we had an instructor who basically gave us an article to read every day, who had us write a one-page summary of the article every day, and then we spent the entirety of our hour and 48-minute-long class twice a week discussing it in a group. Not an instructor-led discussion, but discussing with each other. Now, this is a bunch of non-sociology majors trying to discuss an article that they didn't really understand. Right. So you don't have any existing schemas, really. None. You're attaching this information. It's kind of... None. And we <laughs> we were working very, very hard. But, you know, like the beginner at the gym, we didn't know what to do. Um, you know, we were, we were trying. It was painful. Um, but had nothing, like nothing to hang it on. I needed some guidance. I needed some instruction. I needed the instructor to help me use my brain muscles properly. And it just, it didn't happen. Yeah, it seems like it, at the, the gen ed level, it's it, maybe because that's a lot of our background, uh, it's easier to design one 200 level assignments because you, you kind of know what you're getting. I, I, I do feel for, um, you know, faculty and once you get into that major realm where, again, like we talked about in the last podcast, you're getting students that have maybe come from different gen ed experiences. Maybe they were a dual enrollment student. Maybe they're younger. Maybe they're an older online student and they're hitting their business major or education major with all different, you know, types of skill sets and and, and organizational understanding of the data they've been given. So I I think that from a a perspective of, you know, coming from our gen ed background, you kind of knew that you were getting this type of student. Is there an art and a science to maybe thinking about how you build these things off once you hit a 300 and a 400 level course or going into a master's level? Yeah, I think so. Um, one thing we, we like to talk about is um, just being really clear about outcomes at whatever level. And I think you're right. At the gen ed level, there's kind of commonly accepted outcomes typically that, um, that are across the, the unis- United States at least. Um, you know, psych 100 is psych 100 is psych 100 to some extent anyway. When you get to those upper levels, though, it, does, it gets really challenging because, you know, we get, we get farther in our disciplines. We get a little more passionate. I think the students get a little more interested. Um, but it's really important um, – I think as we're designing assignments, especially at those upper levels, to say, what is it I'm actually trying to measure with this assignment? What is it that I want the students to do? What, what kind of learning or skills do I really want them to be able to display here? And is the thing I'm asking them to do in this assignment actually going to let me measure that? 
And besides that, what else am I scoring the students on that I don't actually care about? But for some reason, I've just stuck in here. Um, it's that battleship term paper again, right? You know, you just kind of default to the term paper. But, you know, a student may display every single learning outcome you want and then fail the paper because their APA formatting is not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a very poor use of germane load. It's also poor grading, <clears throat> but um, especially a poor use of germane load. You're not asking them to use muscles in an efficient way. Yeah, or maybe they knew the, the, the content and the topic well at a test level. Yes. And at an engagement level, but they were not a good writer. So not just not a good researcher, but they this weren't the best writer. Right. And and then there were, you know, a student like me who I would I was a I could write an essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would love anything once I got into my major, uh, that was an essay test because yeah. you could just wax on, yeah. right? But other students, they were they hated that. They hated those blue books, right? right. I love the blue books. Yeah, I'm with you too. on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could get myself out of any kind of trouble when I could control my own terms. Yeah, see, I I, I grew up hating that. I much. <laughs> I really I thought back to like. Uh, I should have grown up like an ancient Greek. <laughs> I felt like sitting on the steps with somebody, being able to talk through uh, the concept, maybe even get it wrong, but be able to kind of correct in stream and then reapply immediately. Like that's just the way I like to engage the concept. Um, so to me, yeah, I, I hated it because I'm like, well, I can I can go tell you this is what I'm going to say, and then you know get that out of places and, and write it down. It just and I understand the value of writing. Please don't send hate mail. Um, but, you write well, Aaron. But it was, we don't have to lie on air. No, 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 you do. I know it takes you a while, but you do write well. But the feedback on those essays were maybe on the, you know, the steps of ancient Greece moment. Because yeah, if, if yeah. you if you got good feedback, and back in the day it was always in red pen, you know, but they would, they would through effective grading, challenge even what you'd written, even if it was right. They would maybe, in their comment, push that thought a little further, mm-hmm. or if it was wrong, they would, of course, correct you or cross it out and circle it or whatever. But it that that was a little bit of the Socratic method, at mm-hmm. least through essays that we got. Yeah, and I can't help, sorry, I have this really bad habit. I think for me, cognitive load revolves around avoiding uh, extraneous load. <laughs> maybe that's just my, like, ID kind of background there. But, um, you know, I, I think about putting students in an online course I- into into the learning management system, having them roll up on a video, and you're just telling them, watch this 30-minute video on this topic. Um, they have no clue really where it falls in the scheme of what you're trying to teach them. There is 30 minutes of somebody talking, and they are now going to try to pay attention to every single one, draw information out of everything that's being said, you might have had three real things you wanted them to focus on. And by simply, you know, just a practice, not trying to give away a trade secret here, but um, one thing we do with all of our online courses when we put in videos or presentations, we're very explicit with the subject matter experts. We need to tell students what to pay attention to. Why are they watching this video? Uh, Going back to the old podcast on cognitive load, I've just never walked into a room put in a video and not said a word, took it out, and then moved on to the next thing. Uh, and, and so to expect, especially an online student, they don't even have the benefit of being able to have that communication. There's a lot more challenges. Um, so getting them into that space where they can make connections instead of being you know, bogged down by the, the 15 minutes of information that's irrelevant, if you can help them focus in on key concepts to pay attention to, 
um, then, I mean, that's going to keep them in that, that germane area, connecting information to what they already have learned or know. Yeah. Yeah. I think those, those connections are, are just really, really key. Um, once again, you know, if you can tell the student there's, there's ways this matters for you, maybe mm-hmm. there's an application to their daily life. Maybe there's a goal of theirs that the information is going to help them achieve, um, they're going to work that muscle harder and better um, if they see a motivation behind it. Um, I know I'm, I'm always much more motivated to um, eat healthy, you know, before I'm going to the beach. I'm less motivated to eat healthy in like November when all I wear is baggy sweaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it probably works the same way for students. Yeah. And so there's, there's an element there to keeping it kind of relevant, right? To, yeah. to their, so what we're teaching them and what we're asking them to do. Um, and that's going to help them, you know, connect what they're learning with, their actual life. And that's, that is a schema, the way they live their life uh, and those elements. Right. And so it's like we talked about in the last one, letting folks pick, you know, a data set and a statistics course uh, that relates to something they care about. You know, we see a lot of people who've had family members with, you know, a particular illness or, or whatnot, and, and they'll use data sets in those areas and just practicing those new skills, those statistics uh, skills, but in an area where they're motivated to learn, it kind of keeps them in that space. Yeah, and it's it's great because, you know, their kind of their gut knowledge will help them out in those areas. You know, if they if they did the math wrong, they can probably look at the conclusion and say, eh, that's not right, because they, they just know it from having lived it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's nice. Um, you can't always do that with, with math that's disconnected from everything else. Sure. Yeah, we were talking about philosophy and a lot of students love to hate philosophy. Of course, I love it. But a couple of our peers did such a good job at doing um, something culturally relative to the time. So they would, uh, one of our peers would connect it to like, um, it was like a Star Trek question or, uh, you know, it was a kind of a terrorist type of question that made them, you know, go through some notion of looking at ethics or morality or, or, or whatever the situation was. They tied it to something that they knew they, they knew their audience would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Those were some pretty cool assignments. Yeah, very cool. I think um, this is also another place where universal design principles can really help out. Um, you know, Aaron, you mentioned that, you know, if you're given a paper, that's that's just going to create a bunch of extra stuff for you that you don't, you don't want, um, that you don't necessarily need to demonstrate your learning. And it's not always appropriate to give flexibility in how students accomplish the learning outcomes. I mean, sometimes you got to assign a paper because it needs to be a paper. Mm-hmm. But if what you really want is to find out if students have understood something and can analyze it, there's more than one way to check for that. Um, and maybe you can give students a chance to maybe make a little video and talk about it. Um, maybe they could write that paper. Um, I would have written the paper. Um, never, ever, ever am I going to make the video, but I can guarantee you <laughs> a lot of my classmates would have made the video and would have done a whole lot better than they did on the paper. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and so in the, the other vein, there's <clears throat> there's techniques at an administrative level. Yeah. Um, or at an advising level. So, you know, think about I've had some days as, a, as an advisor uh, talking to students who are getting ready to take courses and, you know, everybody wants to go as fast as possible. And, you know, so they've signed up for four classes at the same time. And one of those is philosophy. And as most of us didn't have until we hit philosophy, you know, intro, uh, they have no background or schema related to philosophy and that's where you try and sit and talk with a student. I know you're trying to go quickly and be efficient and, and move through the curriculum, but maybe you could take a class or two less right now while you tackle a really tough course um, because that's going to free more time. So instead of all that, you know, additional load from the other courses, because when you're in your philosophy course, 
all the stuff from the other courses, unless it's some sort of interconnected curriculum, is extraneous to that, right? And so to get them into that learning space, you know, affording them time or reflection at the end of course periods. I think, you know, do we think about that enough, especially I, I know I go back to the online stuff, but I just want to keep those folks engaged as well. But explicitly in online courses, it's almost intuitive in a in a face-to-face course to, to maybe recap what we've learned. But do we do that with our online courses? Do we bring students back through the main points and, and help them recap that information? Because uh, revisiting it is going to help them cement that stuff in you know, they made the connection, but some of that with repetition, um, you know, and, and working through that, reminding themselves, uh, like I told you, just having a little space between courses to let that settle in before they move to their math course uh, and all of that philosophy information dumps out of their brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we were we were talking about, um, you know, note taking and, mm-hmm. you know, even, even if you're online, I mean, it makes it makes sense to take notes by hand, right? There's been study after study that shows students learn better if they take notes by hand rather than simply transcribing what somebody says, um, because they're actually having to do some work um, to analyze that material to figure out what's most important to write down um, and so on. So, yeah, just being very, very deliberate with students about, you know, here's a technique and um, this is a good technique and use it and this is why it works. Um, And I'm happy to chat with you about whether you're doing it well or not. Um, Or we have a learning center that's better at this than I am. And I'd love to introduce you to the people there. Sort of value are there places where we can impose these things or impose may be the wrong word, but try to implement some of these things. I mean, I think one of the things that's always surprised me, I, I know we want choice and, and let students take what they need to take, but it is strange to see a, a place of higher learning where we know these things. And then, you know, you've got students stacking five courses one after another, you know, um, and then thinking that the vast majority of students, are they just – storing that information short-term, getting through the next assignment, and then dumping it? Or are they actually being able to, to create any schemas and connections with those and learn that material? Yeah, that, that's really important. I mean, the last place I worked, we always had a problem with new freshmen registering. Um, and we, we gave them some choice, not all the choice in the world. But, um, you know, you get a student who was, you know, like Wayne or me, and we liked reading and writing and um, the non-quantitative disciplines. And then you'd get this student who would sign up for, you know, in their first semester – history, philosophy, two English classes, and a theater history class. And you talk to the student, you'd say, these are all heavy reading, writing courses. You're, you're going to have trouble. You need to break this up. And they'd say, but I love these things. These things are easy for me. That's like going to the gym and doing three hours of exercise on one muscle. Um, so, you know, thinking of it in a balanced way. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Come, okay. And maybe this is a segue more to the, the next podcast, but – you know, when you when you have a student that is not interested in a subject at all, but it's part of the the path they have to take to get through this um, um, you know, grid of, of obtaining a degree. Good design and thoughtful assignments and activities and ways to engage them are kind of like this tether to get them through where almost everything else is lacking because they don't have a, a, a schema and they don't have interest. And even if they're a student with a lot of grit and will, it's not their thing, right? But yeah. a, a good design and, a, and a, a good instructor will kind of get them through it um, so they can get onto the next subject where they can write an essay in a blue book or they can mm-hmm. read something. But that's so important. And, and there were, you know, there were teachers in my life like that where it was only because of their tenacity and not mine 
and how they made it at least as interesting and, and practical as they could to get students through because they were smart enough to know that not everyone was going to be a, you know, a math major. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as we get ready to wrap, I mean, that's a good, you know, thought there. Um, you know, to me, it, the key here with the Jermaine is just, it's funny, it's the point, but you can't really get there without just talking about the other two elements. So that, that extraneous, the, the core principle is if we focus on reducing that at, at all costs where we can, we know we can't take every factor out, but if we can reduce those things and then if we can ensure, you know, like we talked about in the last one, that the schemas are set up so that they're coming into prerequisite courses and we're planning the curriculum so that it connects information they should already have with the new information, then I think that's that in my in my mind, and I think anybody who's talking about probably cognitive load, you know, that is is the best way to ensure we can maximize the amount of time students spend in this space. It's great. Well, we appreciate everybody uh, listening today. Uh, we look forward to talking to you next time, or uh, you listening to us next time, I guess. Um, <laughs> As we we talk about um, how can instructional designers help with cognitive load issues. Thank you for listening to our discussion on germane load. If you enjoyed the podcast today or found it helpful, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or where you listen to podcasts and listen to our earlier episodes. Leave a review and let us know what you think. In two weeks, we finish our discussion on cognitive load, discussing how instructional designers can help with cognitive load issues. If you or your school is looking for help with RSI, your online ecosystem, curriculum, or course development, Think Magellan. Our team would love to help. Reach out to us at thinkmagellan.com. Thank you for joining us on the Magellan Podcast, navigating education in the 21st century.